Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, investment strategist at ClearBridge Investments. And I'm excited to be here today with Marshall Gordon and Nick Wu, who's a PhD, uh, both of which are senior healthcare analysts at ClearBridge and co-portfolio managers for the ClearBridge Global Healthcare Innovation Strategy. Marshall's here with me in our Midtown Manhattan studio, while Nick is our first ever remote podcast participant dialing in from our San Francisco office. We've got both coasts covered here for the podcast, and uh, I thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And the topic of today's podcast is why the healthcare rebound has staying power. So ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $147 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So thanks, everybody, for, for listening in to the podcast here today. And we're going to talk about a part of the market that I have a particular interest in, which is healthcare. Healthcare has been leading the broader market throughout the course of this year. Um, but just last week, the S&P Healthcare Index had a negative 4.5% return. It was actually the worst week in healthcare since March of this year. And in the middle of that, you saw deterioration in biotech. In fact, the XBI was down 7% in a single trading day. Uh, that's the worst daily loss of the XBI in over seven years. So the big question is, is now a buying opportunity? And uh, hopefully, Marshall and Nick, you can weigh in on the, the listeners and, and talk a little bit about that opportunity. So let's talk about that area that, that saw a pretty big drawdown last week, which is biopharmaceuticals. In your opinion, um, what has bigger upside for biopharma? Is it the pipeline delivery or is it more relaxed reg regulatory rhetoric around drug pricing? Yeah, so thanks, Jeff. Um, so unfortunately, political rhetoric on drug pricing is probably the new normal here and is probably not going away anytime soon. However, ultimately, we do believe that innovation and pipeline delivery are the key drivers for a biopharma company and stock performance. So you're going to hear a lot about innovation from Marshall and me, as this is something that we're focused on uh, intently, and in particular, companies that develop products that provide profound clinical benefits and outcomes for patients. We believe that if a company can develop and bring to market innovative products that provide meaningful clinical benefit for patients, the company will get paid for it, and innovation and the innovation is the ultimate defense against pricing pressure. What we've seen, in terms of pricing pressure, what we've seen is that true pricing pressure, and I'm talking about situations in which actual price is coming down, as opposed to political rhetoric, which poses a threat to, to future price, uh, actual price, actual pricing has been most intense in competitive and crowded therapeutic areas, such as diabetes, respiratory, things like hepatitis C, inflammation. Right, because if you have a lot of competition, right, there's naturally going to be less pricing power. What I would add is, is really, pricing is not a monolithic thing. It's not like there is a, a single price setting mechanism. It's really market specific. And the way Nick and I look at our investments and in healthcare 
more broadly, we look at each therapeutic area and each market for drugs separately, the market for drugs for MS, the market for drugs for rheumatoid arthritis or for different types of heart disease. And what you find is in the competitive verticals where there are multiple entrants, where there are players who have substitutable medicines, although perhaps not generics, but ones that are direct competitors, you see significant pricing pressure. And Nick had mentioned diabetes and the areas in the inflammation. There are other areas which uh, are much less competitive. Um, oftentimes, there are drugs for rare diseases where there'll be only one drug to to help people with a specific rare disease. And where there is no competition, there typically isn't price pressure and quite a bit of flexibility for companies to set a high price to recoup their cost of research and development. Yeah, if you're only you're the only game in town, obviously you're you're going to have that pricing power. Absolutely. Um, and the other thing I think that's important to realize is that that pricing isn't all one spectrum. Um, there are different buckets within um, the healthcare system. So there's commercial uh, rates, which are the rates that are paid by people who have uh, employer-based insurance. There's Medicare, there's Medicaid, and the pricing dynamics across the different pieces of that um, are in fact different. So I think what, what it comes down to is that you really do need to look specifically by investment, by company, by market to really get a firm view of pricing. All that said, we are in an era where we're certainly going to see more rhetoric politically. And as Nick said, it's really something that we're going to see on a regular basis. Um, but we need to look at where that's going to impact the system. Um, and our belief is that fundamentally, if you bring a new therapy to market and you really do change patients' lives, you'll get paid for that both as a company and an investor. That kind of brings me to my point. I think it's a concern of investors right now with the midterm elections looming is that that regulatory rhetoric, right? It's not the first time that you've seen biopharma sell off because of fears of, of changes of drug pricing. Um, if you look back to Hillary Care back in the early to mid-1990s, uh, biopharma traded at a cheaper valuation than the market. Uh, you look at after the announcement of Obamacare in 2010, 2011, you had the same dynamic and yet you have that same dynamic now. But importantly, you know, when you have this rhetoric and all the worst fears don't come to fruition, you see a re-rating of biopharma and, and we're at that current juxtapoint right now. Now, do, do you see that as uh, the current environment? Do you think once we get through the midterm elections that uh, there is still some opportunity left in biopharma to re-rate higher? So it's actually not as clear to us that there's a direct correlation between what we're hearing from the political rhetoric and the performance. It may be more coincidental. Sometimes it's kind of it's something that's hard to hard to really see. So it's not as clear that there will be a re-rating. Again, we're really focused. The two of us are really focused on innovation if and really focused on what the companies are bringing out, uh, bringing out within their pipeline, how innovative, how clinically meaningful the products are in order to generate uh, outperformance in the companies. In terms of the actual in terms of the actual proposals that are that, that have been put out so far, um, really I guess there's really been two of them. Um, the first one has been focused on pharmacy drugs, which is uh, and that one and that one's really trying to address uh, issue of drug pricing by cutting out the value provided to the middleman. 
We need to see exactly how this is going to be implemented, but most likely there's really going to be probably a minimal impact to the drug companies themselves. And the primary impact is probably going to be more on the PBMs as they'll be able to extract less profit from rebates. And the PBMs are are pharmacy benefit managers? Correct. Right. And then the, the the more recent proposal, again, towards the end of last week, was focused more on the hospital administered drugs. And the administration has proposed instituting a demo program, a demonstration program, which essentially is designed to narrow the difference between the higher prices paid in the United States and the lower prices paid outside the United States. Again, it's still very early in the process. Um, we've only heard about it in the last few days, and there's still lots of questions exactly on exactly how it'll be implemented, the feasibility, the ability to roll it out over a broader program. And this is something that we will be, be keeping a closer eye on. I think it's important to realize once again, as we've talked about it, um, if you look at if you look at the the overall um, pricing debate, it has coincided with lower biotech valuations. But at the same time, you know, a number of certainly of the larger cap biotechs, less so amongst the sm- small to mid cap stocks, um, the fundamentals there are not what they were five years ago. The growth rates are lower. Some of the prospects um, in the pipelines are not as good. Um, so I think some of that is reflected in the multiples today and in the sell-off. Um, and it's not just a function of pricing. There's uh, a broader, there's a broader, I would say, you know, context in which to put biotech's sell-off. And Nick, you'd mentioned innovation as being the, you know, the one thing that you're looking for from a, a company perspective, from a pipeline perspective. You know, I personally think that when we look back 30 years from now, that they're going to think that we are in the stone ages <laughs> from a healthcare perspective. Um, but innovative, uh, and I mean that from uh, looking at specific diseases right now that don't have uh, a treatable uh, drug that goes along with it, like Alzheimer's. Um, can you talk about maybe some of these opportunities that you're seeing out there and, and maybe some of the technologies that will change what healthcare looks like over the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah, sure. So I think there are quite a number of areas of innovation which will be very meaningful or are meaningful now and will continue to be very meaningful for these companies over the over many years. And I think some of them include the rare diseases. We've seen a lot of innovation as well in oncology, and in particular in immuno-oncology. Um, you mentioned Alzheimer's and then uh, also gene therapy. And I'll, maybe I'll touch on one of them, and then I'll let Marshall jump in as well. So I think one area where we've seen really, um, really truly uh, innovative progress being made is in cystic fibrosis, where, where a company called Vertex Pharmaceuticals, Vertex, is one of the leaders or is the leader in, in cystic fibrosis. So, again, cystic fibrosis is a genetic condition that leads to loss of, uh, loss of lung function over time. Before uh, Vertex's portfolio of drugs made it to the market, all the drugs for cystic fibrosis nearly helped with the symptoms but didn't treat the underlying cause of the disease. So Vertex's drugs, again, they have now three on the market, and they're developing more uh, that will hopefully be on the market and will provide even more benefit in the future. Vertex's drugs are the first to treat the underlying cause of the disease. They provide a meaningful step up and maintenance in the lung function currently for probably two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of patients. And... Uh, 
and the, the improvement in lung function is believed and will most likely end up prolonging the lives of the patient and with improved quality of life as well. Um, so, I mean, that's really one area where there has been meaningful innovation and will, we believe will continue to provide innovation uh, for, the, for the foreseeable future. When I look at the landscape of, of healthcare, and I look particularly in therapeutics, I think one of the most interesting areas where, where we are just at the beginning is, is with gene therapy. And it dovetails with rare disease uh, as well as being able to make you know, leapfrog, uh, leapfrog uh, improvements in, in patients' lives. And this all goes back actually probably 10 or 15 years when we sequenced the human genome. And what we are now seeing is that 15 years ago, we provided the roadmap, meaning we figured out where the genes were, but we didn't really know what to make of that information. And over the past 10 to 15, um, 18 years, really, we've now come to the point where we can make medicines based on our knowledge of the genes. Um, and there are a number of different approaches to making genetic-based medicines. And many of these rare diseases are truly you know, genetic conditions. So one of the areas that, that we've seen an incredible amount of promise is, is direct gene therapy, where you can modify a virus uh, and use that virus to deliver a, a gene to patients where they have a defective one. And in fact, it can be permanently curative, uh, permanently curative therapy uh, and one-time permanently curative therapy wow. for, for, you know, what were thought to be either lifelong chronic or even fatal diseases. And I'll give you a, a number of examples here. Um, one of uh, our, our core investments across a number of our strategies has been Biomarin. Uh, Biomarin is in the lead in producing a gene therapy to treat hemophilia. Hemophilia uh, is actually a single gene defect where somebody doesn't have the a gene to make a critical protein that helps you form clots. Um, and for many years, um, we've been able to treat patients who have hemophilia by actually replacing the protein that they're missing, but we've never been able to have it made by their bodies. So they've actually, and Biomarin, uh, and there's actually another competitor, uh, Spark Therapeutics, who, where we also own a position, um, that have, have developed gene therapies, viruses that deliver genes of the gene to, pro, uh, to produce that specific um, blood factor that they're missing. And what we've seen now is they've been able to give it to patients and normalize their ability to clot. Um, and now they've given it to some patients who are now out several years who used to require infusions once every two to three days, have not had an infusion for three years and have been cured of their hemophilia. Wow. So, you know, those are the types of, um, inve you know, investment opportunities that we're looking for to back, um, as, you know, as institutional investors and there, you know, it's, there's actually a real business model there for even charging multi-millions of dollars for a gene therapy where you can help these patients avoid three times per weekly infusions of a product 
that costs them somewhere between half a million and a million dollars a year. So you're not only um, dramatically improving these patients' lives, but you're saving the system money at the same time. So, you know, those are the types of opportunities we look for. And and you'd want that opportunity because they can charge such a large amount of money for that one-time treatment, but it's still saving the insurance company, the system, quite a bit of money because it's a a one-and-done. Absolutely. Absolutely. One area that that you had mentioned earlier, Jeff, is is Alzheimer's disease, where um, that has been a tremendously difficult area in which to develop drugs. But we believe that that we're perhaps even getting close to a disease-modifying therapy for Alzheimer's as well. Um, one of our firm's larger investments is in, in Biogen IDEC, or Biogen, um, and it is a company um, that has a specialty in neurology. Um, they have a, an antibody, which is a type of protein, a therapy that helps clear the plaques that uh, potentially cause Alzheimer's from the brain. And they are uh, in, in a trial now to see whether or not they can truly make a, uh, a lasting permanent change in the course of Alzheimer's disease in, in patients. And we'll find out about that in early 2020. Um, and they're, you know, given how many patients uh, there are with Alzheimer's disease, as well as what a significant economic burden it is to not just the healthcare system, but the overall economy taking care of people as they age and particularly ones with significant dementia. I mean, it's a tremendous economic and social opportunity. Um, and once again, the kinds of opportunities that we choose to invest in um, and ones where we believe if you can truly prove a significant benefit, you'll you'll definitely get paid for that opportunity as a company and as an investor. Now, what, what was the name of that compound? Aducanumab. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Try saying that five times fast. <laughs> um, are you are you seeing any other healthcare opportunities, uh, maybe outside of the U.S.? You know, it, it's it's a little more challenging outside of the U.S. because the markets aren't as developed. Uh, one thing that we're watching right now is actually biotechnology in China. Um, uh, I uh, recently uh, went over to China um, to look at uh, the companies uh, that are starting up over there. Um, and there must be um, probably a thousand new biotechnology companies. A thousand? A thousand. Backed um, with a significant amount of venture capital um, and some real change in the regulatory regime in China, as well as the uh, reimbursement for uh, new drugs. Um, And I think for biotechnology investors, um, you know, if you plan to be a biotechnology investor over the next 10 years, you're going to have to be watching China as well. Um, So, you know, that is that is probably one of the more interesting global opportunities we see. So great comments, Marshall. Obviously, China is uh, an area that we need to, to look out for from a biotech perspective. Uh, Nick, any, any thoughts about overseas opportunities? Yeah, so another area where we've found, where we've been able to find some ex-U.S. opportunities, really looking for uh, ex-U.S. partners of U.S. Uh, drug companies. So, for example, in Japan, um, we've been able to make successful investments in companies such as KHK or Kiwa Hako Kirin, who is the marketing partner for Ultragenics. Um, we've also had found an opportunity with Azai, which is a Japanese marketing partner, 
uh, marketing and development partner for Biogen's, um, Biogen's Alzheimer's drug. And in a lot of in a lot of these cases, we found that Japanese investors and who are which are the primary investors and primary shareholder base for some of these Japanese companies have really been a bit slower to realize and to appreciate uh, and put in value for the opportunities of pipeline drugs. And so we've been able to find uh, find interesting arbitrage opportunities between the U.S. drug companies and their uh, and their Japanese partners. And this is something that we'll continue to look at as future investment opportunities. Now let's talk about M&A activity. You know, if you look at healthcare, um, healthcare has the highest median offer intensity out of any sector over the past 30 plus years. Um, but right now it's below its long-term median. And that's kind of surprising to me because I would have thought with repatriation, uh, healthcare being the sector with the most amount of foreign earnings locked outside of the, the U.S., with that money coming back home, that M&A activity would have picked up. Um, do you see that the M&A activity will start to pick up in the next year? Are you, you getting hints of that? And is it, you know, what's the landscape overall looking like? My view on M&A is, is a little bit um, counter to the consensus here. Um, if you look at historical data uh, about the occurrence of M&A in the sector, um, there haven't really been waves. It, it really occurs relatively consistently over time. And my view is, and I think Nick shares this is that we're not counting on M, you know a wave of M and A per se. Um, oftentimes, the companies with you know, true innovations do get acquired because that can be very powerful for large pharma companies who have a significant amount of cash and who oftentimes don't have as many new products to launch. Uh, however, you know that's not what something you can rely upon. So within that sector, um, I think M&A is going to probably continue, but not at really an accelerated pace, um, but at a consistent pace over time. Um, and I do think, you know, we'll have, we'll have our companies that, that get taken out. And I think it's really more of a byproduct of picking the right companies with, you know, real, real innovation rather than necessarily a strategy in and of itself. On the services side, I think there's a there's a real watershed event occurring. Um, what we're seeing is that there are a number of services businesses where the old models aren't working, or where we are moving towards a, a, a new equilibrium. And the company, many of these large companies, are using mergers and acquisitions to refashion their business models. So. We're seeing a convergence um, and a vertical uh, integration uh, of a number of different companies. Uh, ones that I would specifically point to would be the merger of CVS with Aetna, where a, a company with a major retail presence as well as a, um, a large pharmacy benefit manager is merging with an insurance company um, to bring those services all together under the same roof. The other is another insurance company, Cigna, where they're merging with Express Scripts, which is a pharmacy benefit manager. And here, there's actually something very fundamental going on. Within the system, we all know that there are tremendous cost pressures. And those cost pressures need to be managed. And the old pharmacy benefit uh, 
the pharmacy benefit um, model wasn't working. Um, and what you really need to do is manage those costs much more holistically. You can't manage drugs separately from other medical care. And so we're seeing this convergence of insurance companies with pharmacy benefit managers in order to provide more seamless care um, and also to help uh, bridge what I think is a a very uh, challenging point in the lives of the pharmacy benefit managers um, and their business model. And so, you know, you are seeing this significant convergence uh, across the two to provide both a new business model as well as better care to Americans. More of an outcome-based type of experience. Yeah. I, it, I think it cuts across outcomes, and I think it, it matters for costs as well. I think being a student of the healthcare system over as many years as, as Nick, and, Nick and I have, I think we've recognized how many unusual and perhaps you know misaligned incentives there are in the system. And by bringing those two business models together and by realigning pharmacy with healthcare, you can actually eliminate some of the distortions within the system and people will both get better care. And at the same time, it should actually cost less. And it's actually been proven by one of our other investments. Um, United Healthcare, which is actually a significant position across the firm, uh, has already brought its pharmacy benefit manager in-house and they're able to save 10 to $20 per member per month by more closely aligning incentives and managing in a more coordinated fashion, the drug and insurance benefits together. And so we believe that that these other mergers have, have the opportunity to do something similar as well. Great. And, uh, you know, you mentioned CVS and Aetna. That's a monster deal, right? I think uh, it was $69 billion, a very large deal that's going through. If you think about CVS, their biggest competitor is Walgreens. Uh, Do you see Walgreens coming in and doing a a deal with uh, somebody else who's outstanding or or kind of what's their counter move? That is the 60 or 70 or $80 billion question. (laughs) Um, That's one where... I'm waiting to see Stefano's next move. We've had we've had a lot of interaction with the CEO there over the years, who's uh, has has created a tremendous amount of value for his shareholders, um, and he himself is a significant shareholder in the company. He owns billions of dollars of stock. He tends to be a value buyer as well, and it will be very interesting to see whether or not he can strike a deal that will fit his financial criteria uh, and as well help transform that business model. So I think I, I, I know he's a deal maker and I know he wants to look at all the different transactions. I think his, they've somewhat limited themselves by watching everybody go first. Um, they reduce their risk because they'll see what mistakes other people have made but I, I, I'm not sure I see the partner. I'm not sure I see who the, who the ultimate deal maker, you know, finds as a dance partner. Well, Nick Marshall, thank you so much for, for joining me in the booth here today. Uh, thank you everybody for joining the healthcare podcast. And I'll just leave you with one closing thought. 
that even though healthcare did underperform last week, um, if you go back to the 1960s, towards the end of an economic cycle and into a recession, healthcare typically outperforms uh, the other sectors that are in the S&P 500. And even though we don't see a recession around the uh, corner here, um, I do think that we're getting later in this economic cycle where higher volatility will be normal and people will seek out some of the more defensive characteristics that you see in the healthcare sector. Um, so thanks again for joining us in here today. And we look forward to having you back on the next ClearBridge podcast. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of October 29th, 2018, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.